When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A Lifetime Original Podcast. This episode covers topics that include murder and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. So I'm dying. I'm dying to know, Quinn. I got a text from Matt, your husband, oh, yeah? about a case of the mysterious nail polish that yes. landed in your house. Yes. I just got like a weird text going, "Is this yours?" There's a red nail I polish. Said, it's a fancy brand, fancier than I usually purchase, and it is unknown to whom it may belong. But I have to tell you, I've seen this nail polish, and I go, "Oh, Quinn's. That's that's definitely been on Quinn's fingertips." That's what funny. I, I what see I it, and I think it's yours. So that's the point. No one knows. Do we have? It is a cold case. It's a case gone <laughs> the, cold. The, the case has gone cold. You know, and I. I mean, listen, I do keep a lot of stuff at your house, so I could understand why the first question was, "I'd be a great suspect." You know, definitely. Wait, which, by the way, I love that I was like, not mine, but it might be your wife's. Like, he didn't ask you first. <laughs> you know who's that might be? <laughs> Quinn. Your wife. Carrie, that's why you make such a good detective. Well, we actually do have a cold case today, though, right? And I do wonder if you had been the detective on this case, would it have been solved <laughs> sooner? Because it took 13 years to solve well, it. I don't think – I mean, that feels crazy to us, but I just have to lay down some facts about this because as of 2022, half of all murders in the U.S. remain unsolved. I actually hate Which that. is crazy to me. It makes me I very uncomfortable. That. It just Well, the lack of closure that these families and loved ones experience is, is mind-boggling and like you've already lost someone you love and care about and to not know how or why – Maddening. Absolutely But it also maddening. makes me think about all the people that maybe did something that are just walking around. Maybe they're your neighbor. Ooh. It's that Ooh, feeling to me. And this feels like that, right? Because the perp in yeah. this case was kind of blending in. This story gets real dark. And so I think you have to know at the beginning from Jump that it's going to end with some closure because this one is a dark one. I think all of us, when we were looking at this case – I think every single one of us felt anger, sadness, um, and and just like a visceral feeling of I want to say hate. I really do. I think all of us really felt bad. Yeah. At some point when reading about this case, so I think we have to spoil and say it's gonna end with closure. But whew, this one's a hard one. Yeah. And if any of you know whose red nail polish that is, please write in. Please write in. Please write in. All right, let's jump into this case. I'm Quinlan Posner. And I'm Carrie Ipema. And this is Crime of a Lifetime. It's 2001, and Scott Ponder opens his dream store. Super Motorbike Motorsport. 
That is a hard Super, name to it's say. It's got a lot of words in a row that are buzzwords that I'm not familiar with. I think the okay, name so is Superbike Super, Motorsport. Thank you. Superbike Motorsport. And this was a dream of his. It's not um, regular bikes like a gal like me might picture. It is cool motorcycle bikes. Okay, it's not bicycles. It's motorcycles. Thank you. Wow, you're well, like an expert. Weird flex. I, I don't, I'm not trying to brag, but here I am. So this has been a dream of Scott's for a long time. He lives in Chesney, South Carolina, and he's going to open this bike shop with not just his mother, who's going to work there, Beverly, but his best friend, Brian. Everything is coming up roses for Scott. He's got a pregnant wife who is going in for her first ultrasound on November 4th, 2003. And they're just... They're living the dream, right? They opened the successful store. They're going to have their first kid. Things are really They're looking up. passing out those ultrasound photos to all of their friends Everyone's and Everyone's pretending on... that they think the baby looks like them or that the baby is cute when, in fact, it just looks like a weird alien. We've all but been everybody's there. everybody's got those pictures on their fridges, period. <laughs> so two days later, November 6, 2003, Scott's friend Noli calls the shop. He talks to Scott. He's like, hey – can I stop by? Are you busy? Scott says, of course. Come on down. We're not busy at all. We'd love to see you. God, it's nice to be your own boss, huh? And your friend's like, can I drop by? And you're like, no Can I drop problem. by and hang out I with you at work? I can't even get in trouble because I'm my boss. That rules. So Noel arrives at the shop at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon and he rolls up and something is wrong. He feels it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's quiet. I don't know if it's a gut feeling, but something feels off. I bet you're right. I bet it's like a sound thing because imagine when you go to visit your friend at a bike shop and you can hear like drilling things and you walk up and it's forgive the phrase, but it's dead silent and there's not a noise. I think he's, you know, curious and then before long that curiosity turns to devastation. He walks up, and the first thing he sees is Brian, one of the co-owners of the shop, lying on the front door with blood coming out of his mouth. And right after he sees Brian, he's he's thinking in his head, no way, I just talked to these guys. Like, to, to visually take that scene and make it a reality would be so difficult, but then he sees Scott, and Scott is there on the ground also bleeding. And I think the first thing he must think is, well, he says that he thought it was a prank because he just had them on the phone. Your mind, I think, also does that thing where it goes, this has to be a joke. This has to be a joke. I can't receive this information. No, absolutely Mm -hmm. not. This is not happening. And But there is a part of him that knows it is because he does call 911. And while he's on the phone with the 911 operator, he discovers Beverly, Scott's mom, also lying in a pool of blood. So Noel is in the shop. He's called 911. The police are on their way. He sees Scott, Brian, and Beverly, and they are all dead from what appears to be gunshot wounds. The police arrive, and they're shutting down the crime scene, right? right? And it is then that they discover a fourth victim, the mechanic of the shop, Chris Sherbert. He has been shot dead in the back room. 
And the police are investigating. They're starting to take stock of what's going on in the building, if anything was taken. And they find that nothing has been taken. Everything is accounted for. And so they have no idea why anyone would do this, right? There's no clear motive that is presented Right, and they have this tiny, tiny window where Noel's on the phone with them and then he's showing up and everybody's dead. And they can make that window actually... The crazy thing is they can make that window smaller because there was a customer there that was there when Noel called. He's visually seeing everyone is alive and he's watching another customer talk to them about motorcycles, having some questions. We don't know who that customer is. The police don't know. But we know that after that customer left, something happened. After the customer who saw everything, right. the eyewitness customer, after they left, yes, that's when this all but went down. But that window is shrinking for when something could have happened. And what you're looking at is if they didn't rob the place and everybody's been shot dead, that's a very personal crime. It's very personal. Someone, It feels like someone was hurt or someone was angry, but there's a lot of emotion behind this. And we all know that when we look at these cases and that is observed, the first person you then look to are family members or friends, people very close to the victims, right? And the first person the police decide to corner and confront about this, sadly, is Scott's now widow, Melissa. Who is pregnant with their child. Oh. I. Ugh. She just lost her damn husband, and now they're bringing her in pregnant. for questioning. I, I mean, I. Her hormones are going bananas, and they're bringing her in to say, "Not only did you lose your husband, but we think it could have been we you." Think it was you. Ugh, what a nightmare! So Melissa Ponder Brackman, now a widow, is called in to take our favorite. Are you ready? Uh, no, I hate this. <laughs> the, I, can I just? She's called in to take a polygraph test, which you 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 folks might have heard that Carrie and I are feeling about polygraph tests is that they're about they have the same utility as a baby shower game, which is fitting because Melissa is pregnant. But I think that if it were a baby shower, she might be having a good time. I'm gonna just hazard a guess that going in for a polygraph related to her deceased husband is not her idea of fun. I'll just I just need a PSA. I don't I, I will say this until I am blue in the face. If someone has you take a polygraph test, you call your attorney and you say no. It is not admissible in court. It is only a way that they can Intimidate tie you up you. and intimidate you and interrogate you. So just say no, thank you. Well, I think that's what they're trying to do here. They're saying we know we know something's fishy, and she's going, "It's not fishy, and this is an utter waste of my time. I don't have anything to do with this, and I don't want to." I have talk nothing to, you, to hide, and I'm out of here. They get her to do the polygraph. She denies it. Even after the results come back, the police they don't believe her. Mm-hmm. Shocking because. A polygraph doesn't work on both ends. Um, So fast forward seven months later after this massacre, and they have no more evidence. They have no more information. They just keep going on this hunch. Melissa's buried her husband. She has now given birth to her baby. Um, You know what they do have at this point? They have gossip, which is (sighs) – that's really – well, it's like what fed what, right? right. I mean, if, if it's like, of course, gossip will come if they're, if the police are asking questions. And what they hear, I don't even know if they can say they hear it. What the police come up with is a theory. 
Right. And this theory is that Melissa was cheating on Scott. And somehow that would lead to a mass shooting massacre. Because we all know the only possible reason for a mass shooting massacre is cheating. And, women. and I think also she was probably on women. her period. Actually, probably well, not. She wasn't. She's she was pregnant. She's pregnant. <laughs> Hormones. She period. But I think what also, again, there's more gossip coming out. And the police hear a rumor that Scott was actually sterile. So they go, ah, oh, this is it. We've got it. So they their next step is they're like, Melissa, we need you to come back, which I'm sure she's like, you Great. jerk bags. Love that. I don't want to hang out with you. She has Can't to wait go to in. See ya. She has to go in. She goes in with her baby. So she's at the police department. She's like, excuse me, I wasn't planning on having to spend the day with you. But I'm sure she also wants to help them solve it, right? She doesn't want right. her husband's case going cold. So I, it's probably a little bit of a mixed bag for her. But she shows up with her baby in tow, and she needs to change his diaper at some point, And she does so. And I'd love to see the look on whatever rookie's face it was that they're like, you got to go get that diapy out of the trash. We want to keep that. And he's like, what? And they're like, go get the diaper. And they're able to run the DNA from the diaper. And it doesn't match Scott. So they're like, right. we're geniuses. And you know who it matches? Brian. This is really exciting. This gives them a new them. idea about a motive. Was Melissa sleeping with Scott's best friend? Did somebody find out? I mean, either way, the story then becomes, so Melissa was having an affair and killed with Brian, everyone. Who was, and killed everyone, including the person she was having an affair with. So they present this information to Melissa with the DNA results. And I was not there. But I can imagine the look on her face oh is shock, awe, fury, uh, incredulousness. Like she is, she's so dumbfounded. And here the police are going, we got it. We got the smoking gun, or as I like to call it, the smoking diaper. <laughs> right. um, it's like all the evidence they need. She's going to sing like a freaking canary. But no, she is resolute. And she says, no. That is not possible. That is absolutely 100% not possible. In fact, I am going to double down more. She insists that the police run the test again and in front of her. So here she is. She has her baby. They take a swab from the baby's cheek, from the baby's DNA, and they match it to what the DNA of Scott they have on file. And again, it doesn't match Scott. It matches Brian. Brian. And she's sitting there going like that. She's like, go exhume him. Go exhume my husband. Like, you need to do something because this this ain't it. This ain't it. Absolutely not. I mean, they tell her. So after all this information, she stops speaking to the police, period, end statement. And then they start to tail her for 18 months. And she's sitting there going like, what? What more can I do? And that's when she's like, you know what? Dig him up. Dig him up. Dig him up. That, you must really have to be at your wit's end if that's where you're at. But you're like, you know what? Dig up my dead spouse because well, – but she must be because to be told this well, over and over again this. and know that it simply isn't so. Quinn, Quinn, it's worse than that because 
this they've they've tested their DNA and and I got to tell you it's not like this is a closed down investigation word gets out to the community so not only is she resolute in saying that is not accurate that's actually not possible rumors start to spread in her community family members start to question whether that baby is Scott's or not Ugh. like it 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 she is mourning the loss of her husband she has a new baby who she's trying to take care of, and now there are rumors around the community that she was cheating on him and possibly caused a death. Like it, it's so bad that Scott's grandmother dies not knowing, not knowing that that child is Scott's. Spoiler alert: It is Scott's because what ends up happening is when nothing is adding up, they can't find any more arrows other than this DNA to point to Melissa. They're looking high and low. And they finally decide to run a few more tests, and they discover something pretty bizarre, which is that Scott's DNA doesn't match Beverly's either, his mom. You're like, wow, everyone's having affairs. No one's related. Everybody's having fear. No one's related. The police, before they exhume Scott's body, I want to be very clear, Melissa asked them to, told them they could exhume his body. The police finds this out before they do that. And they go, ooh, actually, psych, we messed up. We mixed up the DNA vials. Sorry. The damage has already been freaking done. This poor woman. It's like they put Scott's name on Brian's DNA and Brian's name on Scott's. And so they couldn't figure it out. So Scott is, in fact, the baby's father. Yes, and is, in fact, Beverly's son. It's like the worst case of Maury. Again, the damage has been done. The rumors have been spread. And trying to put the cork back on this bottle, impossible. How do you apologize to a woman you did that to, furthermore? Like, I'm so sorry that I accused you of your husband's murder, What stole your newborn baby's duty, Almost exhumed yeah, I don't think him. a greeting company makes that. I don't think that's a card that is a greeting That's not a canned greeting you can card. buy? No, no, I don't think it is. And I also don't think any apology is going to suffice. Here this woman is. She lost her husband. She has a newborn baby. And the people that are there to find the person that actually did it, she's lost all trust in them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that relationship is irreparable for sure. You don't walk away thinking, well, now they'll get the killer. You walk away thinking, how much time did you just waste thinking I was the killer and the killer in the meantime got away? And the case goes cold. So we have four murders, Scott, Brian, Beverly, Chris. Chris. This case, though, is going to stay cold for the next 13 years and really almost be forgotten So for a minute, though, let's think about what that would look like. Yeah, Melissa and Scott's son is 13 years old. Yes, he's 13. He doesn't know who killed his father. He doesn't know what happened all those years ago. And I just, I can't imagine living with that. But what we have to do right now is sort of just put a pin in this case and move on to another because it's only through another that this case got solved. So don't worry, we're going to go back to the bike shop, but let's, Carrie, you want to talk about Kayla? Absolutely. So it is 2016, which is 13 years later, as if we weren't clear about that before. We're still in South Carolina, and I want to introduce you to two new people, Kayla Brown and Charlie Carver. The two of them are dating their boyfriend, girlfriend. They're around 30 years old, and what do they do for work? 
They got a lot of odd jobs, yeah, it's gig right? Work. It's gig work. We know it well. Um, one of the jobs actually the two of them work on together, and that is they clean homes for a local real estate agent named Todd Kolhep. And so it's 2016, it's September, and suddenly nobody hears from Kayla and Charlie. Yeah. The two of them have essentially disappeared. Well, and this gets noticed because Charlie especially is really close to his family, and I think he talks to his mom all the time. So she's worried when she doesn't hear from him. She starts calling around, and she calls um, the house that they're living in, the or the right. apartment, the property manager there, and is like, have you seen my son? Have you seen his girlfriend, Kayla? And they're like, no. They're like, nope, we yeah. have not seen them. But they do offer to do a wellness check of sorts, you know, enter the apartment, see what's going on. And when they open the door to the apartment, the couple is not there, but their dog is. It's like if the two of these people ran away, they probably would have taken their dog with them. This dog, Romeo, has been left alone and it hasn't, and this dog hasn't been fed for days. So it's quite obvious that Something's Charlie up. and Kayla have not been there yeah. for days as well. Yeah. So Charlie's mom, again, she's close to her kid. She's worried. She files a police report. And what is going through her mind is that Charlie yeah. actually has this ex, Nicole, Nicole Nunez. And she's definitely, her behavior since they broke up toward him has been alarming. So they're having inklings like, could this be a, a path we want to go down? And then these weird posts start popping up on Charlie's Facebook that say completely bizarre things. One of them says, sometimes late at night, I dig a hole in the backyard to keep the nosy neighbors guessing. Which you're just like, where are you, Charlie? And why is this getting posted on your wall? And then Charlie posts, expecting a baby girl, July 1st. Do we know when was this in the moments that they were disappeared? This is this is while they're his... disappeared. So it's a vibe of it is Charlie. Are we meant to think that Charlie's okay somewhere and that he's expecting to have a daughter soon and that he's just wiped himself off the planet? Are we expecting it's that a real head scratcher? This? But there's no sort of clear narrative here that's happening with these Facebook posts, other than the fact that they're completely off-putting. In the early aughts, did you post song lyrics to your, like, instant messenger away message? I don't think I was cool enough to post much uh, in the early aughts, but... Well, Charlie writes a new post on the Facebook, and it's a quote from the seminal classic, Hotel California. And this quote ends with, you can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Ominous. Which, (laughs) it's pretty... Yeah, it's a little... It's a little scary, and I think, you know, Charlie's friends and family, they know him. It's their brother, their son, their friend. They're very convinced this is not something Charlie would do, and they're convinced that someone's either taken his phone or has access to his account. So, like we said, it is not clear where these posts that are showing up are coming from, But because they look like they're coming from Charlie, it starts to feel like what they need to find is Charlie's phone. Because the person that has that phone, whether it's Charlie or someone else, might be the person doing these posts and they need answers. So I'm also like, why aren't they looking at the IP addresses of these posts, which is also something that is like a big head scratcher for me because they have a missing, they have a missing persons report. You can 
sort of like geotag what people are posting That's such too. a good question. I'm not sure why it takes so long to find a way to trace this phone or its location or where these posts are coming from, but it it is a couple of months that have gone by. Maybe they're right. Maybe because there's public posts from this person, the police are not necessarily treating it as seriously as they might another missing persons case where it's clear something's gone wrong. But I would say Romeo not getting yeah, his lunch seem... doesn't feel great. So Yeah. Well, I think they're, they don't – I mean, there's no, like, evidence of foul play. So sure. maybe they think this couple just, like, ran away. Um, and it's not until November, which is two months later after they went missing, that this employee at AT&T gets this phone call from Officer Charlene Azell – and this Charlene Azell claims that she's from the Anderson Police Department. And she asks them for some information because she wants to track Charlie Carver's phone to find out which cell phone tower his phone last pinged at. Which is a right? really good we, thing to which figure is a out, really Officer good Azell. Thing. Good for you. It makes sense that they would want to know that. But this AT&T operator is like, something's weird. Well, so I picture that the AT&T operator is like, Officer Azell, can I have your badge number? And the person on the other end is like, um, no, no, no. Um, Actually, uh, I misplaced it. It's, it's in the other room. <laughs> it, it's, it's six. Six digits or just the number six? Yes, is what they said. <laughs> right. Yes. So they don't know their badge number. And then next up, they're like, oh, well, just uh, let me log that you called us. Can you yeah, spell yeah, your yeah, name yeah. for me? And they're like, um, is it maybe no, an know, I? No, an E? <laughs> like, they definitely are not who they say they are. They don't know how to spell Azelle. They don't know the badge number. So it's also like a weird flex to not have done that research before. Like, if you're going to if you're going to do that, like, you have to, like, really go in. Do your homework. Sure and clear. Or just, you know, not obviously lie. Sure. But... It's an obvious lie. It is an and obvious lie. And the calling... AT&T calls the police and they say, you know, Officer Azell just called. And they're like, who? So immediately they're going, oh, this is not who it says it is. Oh, yeah. You wanted us to see what tower pinged off? Ha ha ha. We're rubber and you are glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. And then they trace that call to the nearest tower. And guess who it is? It's freaking Nicole Nunez herself. So the police are like, okay, so here you are trying to locate this guy who's missing. We really don't know what's happening, but what we're going to do is we're going to arrest you and we're going to question you. Which makes sense because I would say that at this point in the game, they have this history they're they dealing no with. Yeah. And now she's calling impersonating an officer, which is not a good Luke. But it's not a good Luke at all. I would like to say, you know, in defense of Nicole, we don't know. Was she calling to to figure out, are the police on my tail? Is this cell phone triangulation data going to lead straight back to me? Or is she genuinely calling because she, to her credit, really wants to know where the hell Charlie is? When I first read this, I was like, why are they arresting her? She's not doing it. She's looking for him too. But then also, of course, it's just finding out which category she stays in. Right. Listen, we don't know which category Nicole is under at this point, but I can tell you one thing. The police do not take kindly to impersonating them. You know, they say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. I would actually argue inaccurate when it comes to police officers. Outside of Halloween, they do not love that. In fact, some might call it illegal. <laughs> so even they're holding on, on to Halloween? Nicole. <laughs> 
they're holding even on Halloween. They're holding on to Nicole, but I think also they go, huh? That seems like a pretty good idea to ping the cell phone tower. As much as they're upset with her, she's also kind of inspired a fun idea. At this point, there's no evidence that she actually is a suspect in the disappearance. So, you know, why don't we just follow her lead? Let's get a warrant. Let's call AT&T, give them an actual badge number. And through this data, they're able to find out that the nearest tower Charlie's phone pings at, the last time it was in use, is in Woodruff, South Carolina. Now, it's a nearby town. It's very rural. And the closest thing to this ping is this 95-acre farm, which is owned by none other than local real estate agent and boss to Kayla and Charlie, our guy Todd Kolop. Yeah, and Todd, he's been running a real estate agent, TKA Real Estate, for a decade. He's apparently pretty successful at it. He you know, as a result of his yeah, work. he has a 95-acre farm. And he That's has a big, big, nice house nearby this property. So they're going to do team A and team B. They're going to divide and conquer. Half of them are going to go to the 95-acre property and take a peek around there. Wow. Other officers are going to show up to Todd's house to interview him. Probably it's twofold. We've got to keep the guy off the property while we take a peek around without any help. And we also want to see what this guy has to say, right? So the police go and visit Todd at his house. And meanwhile, they're on his 95-acre property. And it's a lot of wooded areas. I mean, 95 acres. Isn't that like 45, 40, 42 and a half city blocks? Like, it's big. It's really large. And on the property, there's like a bunch of random buildings. So there's garages, there's sheds, there's a metal container. Um, There's even a small little residence. This is going to take a long time, right? Yeah. So meanwhile, the other investigators are knocking on Todd's door and he answers. And I got to tell you, I, I watched some of this footage and he just looks like, I don't know. This guy is a big presence. He's 5'11", 300 pounds. I think we can say safely that is a large presence. And I think what's also noteworthy is everything he's saying. I know we're in the South, but it's always, sir, yes, sir, no, sir, thank you, sir, no, thank you, sir. Even though there's a ma'am there. Even though there's a ma'am. How dare. How dare. He's got his hands on his hips. He doesn't look... uh He doesn't look worried at all. And he's got his dog with him. And he's kind of like, oh, my dog needs to stay with me. Sorry. And I don't know. I just felt like the way his manner was, uh, he doesn't seem nervous. If I were the investigator showing up at this guy's house, I would not think that he was hiding anything based on behavior. Which is why you're not an investigator. (laughs) Correct. You are a podcaster. (laughs) Just so you know, I'd never trust Quinn. (laughs) Never trust Quinn to be. Not a good judge of character. <laughs> Unless when it comes to boyfriends, Quinn will be the first one. Quinn's going to get a Don't tell my husband partners. that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So back on the farm, right? Team A is with Todd. Team B is on the farm. And they are navigating this property, walking through the re- weeds, walking through the woods, and they stumble upon Charlie's car. And it's not just like the car was parked there. It's also been painted and camouflaged with brown spray and covered in brush, which again is Doesn't like, look who's good. covering up the car. It's not a good look. Um, so at that point, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, they start to look even more aggressively. And I don't know how much they're in touch with the, 
you know, a team over at Todd's house, but I bet they're going vamp, 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 like keep them there, keep them there. And they cautiously approach every building at this point, right? They don't know what they're going to find. They don't know what danger awaits them. So it's really scary. It's like they're in this uncharted territory. There's a bunch of buildings. Their guns are drawn. They're, they're definitely on high alert defense mode. So they walk up to this small house and in the garage, there is a makeshift plywood bedroom and living area. And there's just guns everywhere. Guns, 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 guns. Guns are (sighs) under a work counter, in a cabinet, in a toolbox, in a box, with a fox, in a cup, under a pup. He has guns everywhere. But they're not even locked up. They are fully loaded, just sitting out on countertops. Yeah, and just open. Just an open area. So... It's. I think that they're now, if they weren't already anxious walking around this property. The guns are drawn yeah. from their hip. There is no question it is in their hand. They are looking through the viewfinder. They are trolling this place. And in this house's small bedroom, this makeshift plywood bedroom, which if that wasn't creepy enough, I don't know what is, they find a long chain locked to a metal loop on the wall. They still have not found any people, but that doesn't look good. And so they're walking around. They leave the house. They see the garage. The garage is empty. Then they see this shipping container, and they look at it, and and they go to open the door, cautiously, of course, and the door doesn't budge. It is locked. And by locked, I mean locked, 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 locked. It is five padlocks on this door. It is Super duper locked. Yeah, whatever's in there, they don't want uh, someone to get it in, or they don't want they don't want someone to get out getting out. Because as they approach, it starts to look like the ladder. Because what they hear as they approach this quadruple, quintuple locked container is they hear banging coming from the inside. So. They start to cut through each of these five locks. They cut one. They cut two. They cut three. They cut four. And they are out there cutting, and the sounds are becoming clearer to them. It is the sound of a woman screaming. She's crying out for help. This next moment is filmed by the sheriff department, and Quinn and I were able to watch it, and it is... It's devastating, right? It's like you see this group of grown men Mm -hmm. opening this shipping container. And as they're making their way towards the back of it, you see toilet paper, granola bars, 55-gallon barrels, those plastic barrels. It's a very like Y2K sort of closet they're walking through with just it's stocked to the brim. And they have a flashlight and the flashlight focuses – on Kayla Brown. She is sitting on these dog beds. Her feet are tied up to one side of the wall and her neck has a metal chain wrapped around it with a padlock and that is attached to the wall on the opposite side of her legs. She is sitting there. She looks calm. And I I think at this point she she doesn't know if these are friends or foes, right, yeah. from her perspective. I mean, it's imagine like, being in that situation for months and every noise no, you hear. Every time someone has opened that door up until now, 
It has not been to help her. And what we see happen in the video at this point is that they approach her with these bolt cutters that they used on the locks, and they use it to cut her neck free from the wall. And they ask her, where's Charlie? And she tells them, very matter-of-factly, Todd Colehep shot Charlie Carver three times in the chest, wrapped him in a blue tarp, put him in the bucket of the tractor, locked me down here, and I've never seen him again. Him meaning Charlie. She has, unfortunately for her, seen Todd many more times after that. And she's able to say how she met Todd. She, She tells them that she met Todd about five or six years ago, that she met him through a mutual friend, and they became Facebook friends. And when her and Charlie started this cleaning operation between the two of them, Todd offered them work for his real estate business. So she and Charlie came to help him clear out this property, do some like yard work basically on August 31st. They show up. He he takes them to a part of the land, hands them some clippers and walks away. So they're out there with their water bottles and their clippers, you know, thinking that they're going to start a hard day's work that they're going to get paid for. But it's not long till Todd comes back and shoots Charlie, just like Kayla said, and then he holds Kayla at gunpoint. So imagine that she, I, I just, the shock that must have gone through her when that happened, it's, what is it? It reminds flight? me of Noel, that like feel of like, like this can't what's be happening. happening. And it's flight, fight, or freeze. She freezes. And I, and I, and she just doesn't know what to even And I think do that next. saves her. Yeah. That freeze saves her because, you know, Todd, I think, Again, we don't know what's going on in his head at this point, right? right? But my assumption is that he sees an opportunity where she's not running, she's not fighting. Now he's going to spare her life for his own pleasure, for his own means, Mm -hmm. right? And he he tells her he's so sorry about Charlie, um, but if she does exactly what he tells her, he will let her live. Um, And so Kayla complies because that's the only way she knows she's going to survive. We have she has seen any that chance before. of survival. We've seen, We've seen that, that before. Victims of Kara. Yes. That's exactly yeah, what I think I, of where you do a thing where if you're going to you know, you could get away if you fight tooth and nail but not against totally. a gun. And if somebody has a gun, you've really got to find a different way to keep yourself safe and a lot of the time pretending to be somebody's friend and be um an easy what they what they're gonna see as an easy target, someone they don't have to be worried about, that worried can about, really yeah. buy you time. And in that time, who knows what could you can happen. Come up with a game plan. I think while he has her, he he starts talking about his plans, right? It's like he tells her, you know, I don't know if I'm gonna kill you, if I'm gonna sell you or what, you know, and and she's just having to listen to this and comply until she gets an opportunity to escape or someone can find her. Well, and I think when she hears him say, I don't know if I'm going to kill you or sell you, it's it's it could be to keep her in line. But he says a lot of scary things while she's uh, his captive. You know, he rapes her every day. He yeah. shows up on that property. He takes her out like she's an animal. Sometimes he walks her around like she's a dog or something. Which is that, which is why they found that metal hoop in the bedroom of that makeshift plywood room. Right. 
And he says things to keep her scared and to keep her in line. And she's not sure what to believe and what not to believe. But by all accounts, this is obviously a very dangerous person. She watched him kill her boyfriend. And here she is day after day being given, you know, a handful of Ritz crackers and just uh, waiting to maybe get to see the light of day because she's in a shipping container in the dark. It is black in there. And he gives her one little lantern, like a little flashlight. And he tells her while she's his captive that he picked her deliberately. He tells her that he hopes that the Stockholm syndrome will kick in and she'll develop some feelings for him and be happy. I cannot imagine somebody saying that that's your best bet at happiness is Stockholm syndrome. And I think that it is cold comfort. Kayla has lost someone she loves and she has Mm -hmm. been tortured for months, but Mm -hmm. she was able to then give police a bunch of really useful things that are going to come in handy and they won't necessarily save any lives at this point, but they will bring closure to a lot of people that lost loved ones. Yeah. More on that after this. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. So, they have just found Kayla, but keep in mind, we got the other team still dealing with Todd. They get a phone call from the team that has found Kayla, and I cannot imagine how bizarre it would feel to have Todd in front of you be talking to him. And like I said, he's maintaining this very sort of innocent demeanor, this helpful guy. And then they get a call that is, yep, we found someone on his property chained to a wall like a dog and they have to turn to the monster in front of them and go hey ma'am great talking to you but actually here's the thing we found Kayla and this is all on tape you can watch him have to register it and he just goes what and they're like yeah we found Kayla And obviously, all the air is now sucked out of the room, and the vibe completely changes where it's not, 
let's try to figure this out together. It's you're under arrest and they handcuff him. They take him out and they he answers questions for a second. And then he just is like, you know what? I'm going to need an attorney. And it's like, yeah, you are going to need one. They're like, good idea. This is nuts. And I, it's so interesting because the officer who gets the phone call, you can see, because I, I mean, again, I don't know this. I've never been in this situation before. Spoiler alert. But <laughs> you can like see hit the feeling in his chest. Did you see that when you watched it? It was like he found out he has Kayla. He went, he was like, help us, help yourself and tell us what you know about Kayla. Tell us what you know about Charlie. You know, that's like mm-hmm. such a tactic police officers use. It's like, help yourself. If you know what's good for you, you're going to tell us all you know right now. And when he says, no, I'm getting an attorney, you could see the officer's like body tense mm-hmm. and f- like that feeling of anger and bile rise in your chest. And so the police know this is our guy and they continue to search the property that Kayla was found on and they find Charlie's grave. They also find a freshly dug hole next to it. Terrifying. And so the image of that, so of coming upon this person's grave, totally. that you knew you were going to find a body, but to see that grave dug next to it and know that feet away from that was a woman in a shipping container. You just, I mean, had they waited a day, had they waited a, like, you don't know. You really don't know. I don't know that Todd knew. I just, I, no. I think maybe he was, uh, he was tiring of this, and he did tell Kayla at certain points that he had plans for another abduction for another woman that he knew that right. he wanted to to go abduct her next. And I think that, you know, maybe he felt like it's easier to dispose of Kayla than to build uh, another dog collar chain to hold a second person. It just is getting too crowded. Maybe it's easiest if I'm going to kidnap someone else to drop you. And she must have been to learn that, to have kept herself alive that long, and then to learn that there was a freshly dug grave on the property that had her name on it. Horrifying. Well, I think her agreeable attitude saved her life. I also... I think it's very clear that his intentions were to clear Kayla based on all of this, right? He, by him telling her all of this information about his life, because, because he he didn't keep quiet. He he told her that he was a serial killer. He brags about having victims in the double digits. So you know, he wasn't planning on letting her go, right? It's like the more information this guy starts she sharing with her, she much. must know. I'm, he's telling me too much. I know my days are numbered. And he even t- goes as far as to tell her that he wants his numbers to be in the triple digits. Well, one thing's for sure. Once they find Kayla, Todd, like we said, his demeanor changes. He does ask for a lawyer. But then after asking for a lawyer and they're like, you know, we found Charlie now. He kind of knows like the jig is up. There's not a whole lot a lawyer can do for you at this point because they now have the woman that witnessed you committing the murder. They have the body right. on your property. So he kind of changes tactics. It's not tactics looking good, Todd. Where instead of trying to, I don't know, protect himself, he's like, you know what, guys? I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to help you close a few cases. And he really does say it like I just said it. It has this very smug vibe of now I'm on your team, folks, and I'm going to help you. I'm so generous. I'm going to walk you through 
some of the murders, and you heard me correctly, it is plural, murders that I've committed. I think the police also see this interrogation as an opening. It's very clear why he's doing it, what he's doing. It's all about ego. It's about being braggadocious. And I think the officers on this case sort of are able to step up to the plate Mm -hmm. and they meet him where he is, right? Yeah, they recognize a narcissist when they see one. And they're like, if we can get this guy to give us information... They start to egg him on. They start to laugh at his jokes. They start to engage in him more and ask, you know, leading questions. And he's loving this limelight and the spotlight. And he just sings and sings and sings. And these are on film. And it is like the fact that he's giggling. He is laughing. He is showing no remorse. It is it is bone-chilling, blood-curdling is how it feels. No, you you watch it and you feel your face get hot. You feel your temperature change because it is uh, to watch somebody not just talk about doing these horrific things, but really he's bragging about them. And there is this missing piece where you do feel like there's this lack of self-awareness that he actually harbors some sort of idea that maybe other people will think he's cool or that he has one over on them. It's so bizarre. I think one of the most chilling quotes he gives in this interrogation is he says something like, golf game weak, kill game strong. He like equates taking a life to a sport. And he calls this property his killing field because they're about to uh, find out that there are more graves on it, right? Yeah. Among the graves, they find the remains of Johnny and Megan Coxie. They are 25 and 29 years old, respectively. And the two of them, they went missing in December of 2015, a year ago. Right. Megan was a local waitress who also made the mistake of agreeing to uh, clean houses and stuff for Todd, do odd jobs to get extra money. And her boyfriend, Johnny, also went with her to, I guess, what we'll now call Todd's killing field to do a little work. And Todd says that Johnny pulled a knife on him. We'll never know if that's the case because the two witnesses to this happening are dead and and buried on Todd's land. Megan left behind a seven-year-old child, a seven-year-old son, who, in his mind, his mom left and never came back. Right. I mean, the scope of the tragedy is uh, obviously more than we can even visit on this show. You know, we can't get into how many lives were touched and harmed uh, by the loss of these people and by the mystery of them just vanishing. Um, And I do want to say something that's um, particularly horrible. So if you want to skip ahead like 30 seconds, this next detail is not – necessary for the story it, but I do want to yeah I mean I, I I think it's important to bring up because we are talking about um well as much as he's admitting to this stuff there's stuff that he won't fully cop to well and I, yes and I as much as we talk about Todd being a guy that's all about like murder flexing all over the place this particular yeah. detail he seems to have some shame around which is that The two bodies of Charlie and Johnny, the two men that are found on his property, these bodies are both missing their feet. And the police ask Todd, they're like, 
these two bodies, they don't have any feet. What's up with that? And Todd says, my mother told me to never play with my food. That is the response he gives them, which makes no logical sense. Is he saying that he cannibalized those feet? Is he saying that uh, he's calling them food? Is it similar to calling them prey because he thinks of himself as like this hunter sort of? We just don't know why he says that, but he never actually gives them a clear answer. The feet are never found. But it is really interesting when we're talking about the mind of this narcissist sociopathic killer that when it comes to talking about this detail there is some shame yeah and it's the first time you hear this guy go quiet on something because he loves talking about himself all the while in this confession you know barring the moments that he's quiet when he experiences just one little teeny sliver of shame the police are meeting his ego, right? Just hoping, making him laugh. Yeah, I mean, it's a tactic, right? It's a for sure tactic. And it is, it's very jarring to listen to, right? And you can tell that this guy is all about his freaking ego. In fact, he even starts to brag, you know, I think they should even put my face on some billboards. Maybe it'll help with my real estate business. You know, Todd, hate to tell you, I think your real estate business is going to be gone. I think you're going to live in jail, like I, that, like it's closed, that, like Todd. cognitive dissonance. Right. I'm like, he's almost like bragging about this new notor- notoriety mm-hmm. he's going to get from all of from being a serial killer. And then here we are, we're back, baby. Let's let's bring it home, Quinn. Yeah, it's full circle because we're back. I told you we'd come back to the bike shop murders, and here she we promised. are. Quinn doesn't lie. Quinn doesn't lie. I wouldn't lie to you. Todd tells police that he was the one that killed Scott, Brian, Beverly, and Chris at the bike shop in 2003. And he recounts why he did it and how he did it. And he is almost, uh, I would almost use the word giddy. Would you say that in, when Ugh. he's describing this? He's so. He's talking faster. He's more excitable he's for sure. proud of himself. He tells them, mm-hmm. he tells the police I cleared that building in under 30 seconds. You guys would have been proud. I'm sorry, but you would have been proud. And I'm like, Todd, read the room. No one's proud of you. What are you talking about? Here's what Todd says happened, okay? We're going to go back to 2003. And the two employees at the shop, Brian and Scott, the two owners of the shop, Mm -hmm. um, Todd did not have a great interaction with. And again, I'm just going to say it before all about this guy's ego. He went in to go buy a bike from this shop and he felt that Brian and Scott laughed at him because he said he had a hard time riding his bike, that he had a difficult time riding the bike. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, but it's like twofold. First that happens and then to add insult to injury, he comes back to the shop because the bike got stolen and then they laugh at him again. He thinks they, again, we don't know. We don't know. It seems like this guy's pretty freaking sensitive. Well, what I think happened exactly was that he came in and said, oh, the bike got stolen. I'm going to get another bike. And that Brian made some remark about like, oh, then we'll have to come steal that one, which obviously is a joke. And Todd in his head is like, oh, you stole my bike. And so he now has, he's added them to his list. He's added them to his kill list. And so he leaves, he comes back to the bike shop, he pulls out a Beretta, 
and he shoots the mechanic, Chris, and then he goes to the showroom. He shoots Scott's mom, Beverly. And when he's talking about that, when he's talking about shooting Beverly, he says of shooting this woman that was a wife, that was a mother, not my best work. The pattern was horrible. Almost like he's, again, he's like nudging the police like, he wants to be one of them as the vibe. And, like, you guys know what yeah. I'm talking about, right? We all shoot guns. Ugh, didn't do great on this one. And then he's talking about how he went to kill Scott and Brian after. And he's laughing, saying, that was a fast reload. He's he's really thinks that these police are going to be fans of his is the vibe in the room, which it just – Again, and they're and they're leaning into that. The police are leaning into. That I was to actually get more proud of them for him. leaning into it because it's not yeah. going to do them any good. It's not an easy to thing pit to themselves lean into against him. No, I was sort yeah. of impressed because the rage that you would feel dealing with somebody like that and having to bury it and get them to keep talking. Yeah, and it does work because he does keep talking. He says that he shot each of them in the head after he'd already killed them, that he did like one final walk around where he put a bullet in each of their heads. And that was something that was not released to the media. So this is vital information that they can hold on to to be like, okay, we do know that this was you. confirm it was him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. What makes me see red, besides all of this, but what makes me see like a magenta red is that Todd has – been under the police's nose since 2003. Right. I'm sorry, since before that. Yeah. What's what's wild is that after the massacre, after the shooting at um, the bike shop, the police were sent a list of customers. And what they did was they sent letters to all of these customers asking them if they know any information to send it to them. Mm-hmm. And amongst those customers was Todd Kolop. In fact... On this list, they even flagged his name because he had a criminal past. Right. So here the police are accusing Melissa, this widow, new mom, of being involved in her husband's murder. All the while, they have this list of names and Todd with a freaking asterisk next to it. And if they had asked questions, if they looked at his guns, if they were to match any of this, he might have been behind bars way sooner and Kayla and Charlie and Megan and Johnny, they could have been saved. Well, yeah. And, and I think to be clear, like we we know that how much energy they spent, uh, you know, trying to DNA test dirty diapers. But they were not, you know, they called Todd twice. He didn't pick up twice. and that was it. That's the end of it. They didn't even call him back. No. I've had ex-boyfriends who are more persistent. <laughs> I've had dates that are more persistent than the police. It's like we've talked about this where the, the police get just laser focused on who they think did it. And anything else outside of that need not apply. Yeah. And it's and this was a tiny, tiny – remember we talked at the beginning about this was a tiny frame of time that this crime happened. And we know that because of right. Noel's phone call. We also know that because of the customer that saw right. someone there talking to Brian. Brian and Scott about a bike. And guess who that person was? It was Todd. And this person, this eyewitness, Kelly Sisk, that was there, that was a customer go-kart shopping with his son, he says, if you'd have shown me a picture of him, I could have ID'd him. But no one ever did. Wait, what's even crazier about that, Quinn, is this guy has a criminal record, so they even have his mugshot. Like it wasn't like if if they took every person with a criminal record, everyone that had an asterisk next to their name and went to the eyewitness and said, do any of these guys look familiar? 
they would have had enough to get a warrant to possibly do more. I mean, it is this is 13 years of a man free who should have been behind bars. And as if there weren't enough red flags in this story, we got to get to the Amazon reviews. We got to get to the Amazon reviews. This is weird. This is weird. Right. So they find on his computer that he had made these purchases um, on Amazon of things that are in, in and of themselves freaky if you know who Todd is now, which you do. So his his shopping list is padlocks, shovels, tasers, gun accessories. It's a bundle of like kidnapper stuff. Like he's looking like, is there like a registry for a kidnapper, kidnapper starter material? kit? Yes. It truly Murderers is. Murderers are us. Which you got to ask, why, why aren't we like looking at these purchases and going, huh, huh, maybe, just maybe we should Take a deeper look. Well, certainly if the reviews say the kinds of things his did, on one of them he says, it's blacker than my soul and priced right. And you can just hear it because Todd's got that, um, I'm so sort of funny. Yes. And like, oh, this is so cutesy. The way he is speaking to the police about his kills are the way he speaks in these reviews. He says of a padlock, solid locks have five on a shipping container, won't stop them but sure will slow them down till they are too old to care. And you guys must now remember that he had five padlocks on a shipping container that he was keeping Kayla inside of. It is, it is like, he he just is that, that like feeling, that fearlessness of flirting with being found out because you are so sure no one will ever find you. It's that brazen attitude of look what I've done mm-hmm. and you're never going to get me. He wrote a review for a folding shovel that says, keep in car for when you have to hide the bodies and you left the full size shovel at home. Um, another one for a chainsaw reads, works excellent. Getting the neighbor to stand still while you chase him with it is hard enough without having an easy to use chainsaw. A knife review, a knife Haven't stabbed anyone yet, yet, but I am keeping the dream alive, and when I do, it will be with a quality tool like this. Hey, who's a quality tool? It's you, Todd. It's you, Todd. It's you. Look in the mirror. A quality tool is looking back. You know, the other really freaky one that haunts Mm -hmm. me is the one that he left uh, for another set of locks he bought, and he wrote, now my locks have locks places like Hotel California now. And then you remember those lyrics posted on Charlie Carver's Facebook page. You can check out any time you like. But you can never leave. you can never leave. This guy is not going to make it through trial. (laughs) Like, (laughs) if this is all the information he's admitted to it, he's confessed, there's no way this guy is going to claim he's not guilty. On May 26, 2017, Todd Colep pleads guilty to seven counts of murder, two counts of kidnapping, and one count of rape. He's sentenced to seven life sentences plus 60 years. Frankly, not long enough. Todd will never be eligible for parole, and he's also agreed in this uh, in this confession to not appeal the sentence. So that guy is where he is forever. So the victims' families, uh, who a lot of them sort of became friends and found solace in each other, it was this situation where 
they're kind of this unhappy family, if you could call them that, where obviously they came together under the most horrific circumstances, but they do what they can to support one another. Um, And a lot of them are able to attend this hearing and address Todd directly. Um, I don't know what it does for them in the sense that I feel like Todd is like not they get to speak directly to the person who took their loved one away and i and again i don't know i don't know the psychology of that but i could imagine them facing him mm-hmm. while he is about to spend the rest of his life in jail i i think that could be um helpful completely i'm just like i i can't help but imagine that todd is the kind of guy that it's always about him and there's yeah, something exactly. there that like makes me even angrier. I I can't quite explain it. And Kayla doesn't go. She doesn't attend the trial. She does go on Dr. Phil though actually and talk about uh, what it was like for her. And obviously she's diagnosed with PTSD and has, you know, any number of uh, issues Poor moving thing. forward and having to deal with this having happened to her. I cannot imagine how painful that must well, be. And I do want to highlight, you know, Todd was charged with seven murders. Now, keep in mind, when he abducted and was holding Kayla hostage, he told her that his murders were in the double digits. Right. right? And so, and I think it's also worth noting that, you know, when we started this story, we opened with a case in 2003, and he's put in jail in 2017, and we know of a couple murders in the couple years around 2016. I I am hard-pressed based on how many of these cases that we've covered that there is about 12 years where he didn't kill anyone. You don't think Todd I, I was an that, upright citizen for 12 years of his life? Knowing I mean, I, his whole there's history? There's no way. There's no question to me that there's more victims. It's so tricky with Todd because you can easily argue on the one hand that, and I agree with you, what his history tells us is this is a very violent person, someone that even enjoys killing people. And it feels really hard to believe that that wouldn't have been Mm -hmm. something that was happening. But it also, he's the kind of guy that he's so braggadocious. Is he someone that would inflate his murder count? Does he want to be seen as more prolific a serial killer than he in fact was? And a criminal profiler named Pat Brown said that Todd's confession to the bike shop murders is full of holes. And that there's all these things in it that make that leave up up to question, was that Todd's work? Did Todd even do that? Todd could have killed mm. less people than we think he killed. Right? I just, I, again, I have a hard time really believing. But I wonder, the fact that he also knew that all of them had one final shot in their heads, I mean, that's that's how the police were able to confirm that he knew something that they did not make public. I think that we have to say that he did these bike shop murders if only because those families waited for justice for a long time and they feel they finally gotten it. I would not want to do anything to take that away from them. I will mm-hmm. say that Todd running around saying he's killed a bunch more people and telling stories about it has never been confirmed. Um, none of the bodies that he says are out there have been found. I think if we've learned anything, there are people, and I'm going to say they are broken-brained people because something is broken if you are bragging about killing people like this. I don't – I again, I'm, I'm no neuroscientist, but I'm here to tell you something is deeply broken. Well, let's just say that there's a lot of sadness in this story and a lot yeah. of uh, pain, but – The good news is 
there was a survivor. The families that didn't have closure for so long did receive some. And the absolute tool and monster that is Todd will never see the light of day again. What a tool. Um, We'd like to know if you agree with us. Do you think he is a tool? Let us know what you think about Todd Kolhep. Um, Feel free to use the hashtag crime of a lifetime to let us know everything you're thinking. Um, Thank you for listening in and we can't wait to see you next week. Catch more gripping stories pulled straight from the headlines with all new original series and movies on Lifetime and stream on the Lifetime app or on demand. Check out mylifetime.com to find out what's airing because it just might be the case we talk about next. We used many sources in our research for today's episode. Among the most helpful were the following. Reporting from the Greenville News in South Carolina, a report from CBS News' 48 Hours entitled Todd Kolhep Case, Confessions of the South Carolina Serial Killer, and the documentary series Serial Killer, Devil Unchained. If you'd like to learn more about this story, we highly recommend you check out these sources. Crime of a Lifetime is produced by Tanner Robbins. Our associate producers are Hazel May and us. Quinlan Posner. And Carrie Ipema. Our sound designer and editor is Hans Dale Shee. Our senior producer is John Thrasher. McKamey Lynn is our supervising producer and Jesse Katz is our executive producer. If you like what you hear on the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Crime of a Lifetime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Copyright 2023, A&E Television Networks, LLC. All rights reserved. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.